This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone, and out there and in the world, welcome to our Sunday program with our guest speaker, David Shapiro. Please uh, welcome him, and we welcome him here, and after uh, quite a few months that he's been here, and look forward to your talk today, and understand that uh, the proofs are in, or the proofs are coming, and that is so exciting on your uh, multi-year project. I hope you'll talk a little bit about that. So welcome, David. Welcome, Jeannie. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, can does the world hear me? Okay. Yes. Okay. I guess so. They're all muted. I guess that's the good news. I think we're so, good. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, we're absolutely thrilled to be here. We've been. Um, Jane and I have been uh, in sheltering in place in Belmont, not that far from here. And um, we um, set out this morning to uh, come here um, and are absolutely thrilled uh, both at the uh, honor of being able to give a talk here, uh, but also to actually be in the presence of this wonderful space, I'm sure. As um, things are subject to change and impermanence, uh, perhaps this pandemic too will be subject to change and impermanence, and uh, and we'll all be able to gather here again um, within this very lifetime. At least, anyway, um, we are absolutely thrilled to be here. Uh, maybe I'll talk about the proofs first. It's not the proof of this talk. This talk has no particular proof, it being about the three marks of existence, which, as we'll talk about later, simply are. They're not really subject to proof so much as they are uh, incorporation into one's view. Uh, but more about that later. The, the proofs uh, that were spoken of is uh, the next uh, book that uh, Jane and Lama Chonin and uh, some what I uh, were involved in translating, which has to do with the continued uh, um, saga of the uh, epic of Gesar. And it's, it's, what was it named now? It used to be called the Battle of Duden Lane, which is the Tibetan title, which is now called, I think, the Taming of the Demons. Because that's, our publisher thought that was way catchier. So they're going with that. It's, I'm sure going to fly right off the shelves and uh, and actually will be available probably uh, before the end of this calendar year and will be being published, is being published uh, by Shambhala. And someday perhaps we'll even have Jane and maybe Jane and I give a talk about that particular project. So um, that's the first preamble. I had a second preamble that I've been thinking about uh, Jane and I are involved in a, in a series of teachings by a Tibetan Buddhist Lama 
And he's uh, an older fellow, almost as old as we are, not quite, but he's been a monk in uh, Kempo and a teacher uh, uh, and been studying Buddhism, meditating, been in retreats really since the age of eight or so. And uh, he just embarked on a, a new set of teachings of, uh, uh, in, uh, of Tibetan Buddhism. And we meet uh, as a group, actually through Zoom, not surprising since he's in Nepal. Um, and uh, at the beginning of this particular set of teachings, he, he went sort of on and on, which he sometimes does, frankly. And, uh, and the gist of what he was saying was that uh, it may be true that he's been studying a while and that he's been reading a while and he's been meditating a while, but, but his effort is entirely about presenting those things that he uh, has heard and read about. Uh, without adding, the whole point is that without adding anything um, of his own. And, uh, and I thought that was a, kind of a remarkable thing uh, as uh, this, this set of teachings that he's giving was, uh, is a commentary that was written by a, a fellow who died uh, about 750 years ago. And he, this particular teacher, had been studying this for probably 40 years. And, and his endeavor is to simply state what it is that, uh, that he's been told or that he's read without adding uh, his particular uh, uh, realization of personality uh, into that. I thought that was, that was really remarkable. And um, though uh, I have a somewhat cynical attitude and uh, bad or dry sense of humor and a little bit of a New York accent um, I would be something to aspire to. Well, I frankly don't know uh, the degree to which I'll be able to succeed in that. In any case, uh, that's the second preamble. We're sort of done with the preambles now. And what we're going to talk about is known as the three marks of existence, which are uh, impermanence, suffering, and egolessness or groundlessness, sometimes they're known as the four normative truths or the four marks of existence. And that's when they throw in peace or nirvana into the mix, but we're not gonna talk about that. So we're gonna, we're gonna stick with the first three. And uh, the reason for this, well, not the reason for this, but you know, I guess the reason for this is that the three marks of existence represents one of the very earliest of the Buddha's teachings. It's found in the Pali Canon. It's been translated and uh, retranslated and commented on and recommented on really for 2,500 years. And so we have heard a lot about it. And yet it represents a part of Buddhism that I think really all sects and subdivisions, and whatever you call it, tribes or clans. Um, have some connection with, and uh, and they're so it's so fundamental to Buddhism. And uh, whether you're a Theravadan or a Mahayanist or a Tibetan Buddhist or a Chan Buddhist or anything really, frankly, uh, the three marks of existence represents one one of the real cornerstones 
and it really re it represents um, the view. We sometimes talk about that, and I I know um, um, very little about Zen and uh, study habits of people here. In fact, I know very little about anything. But in the list of things I know very little about, it's relatively high on the list. But the three marks of existence, as we understand them, of permanent suffering and egolessness um, are, are, are really the rock foundation. Sometimes we talk about the Four Noble Truths, which of course are um, suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path. Um, but, and that's another of the formative truths. And when we talk about truth here, we simply are attempting to state that this is how things are. It would be kind of, to argue about the three marks of existence would be like arguing about rain. And well, of course in California, you can argue about rain because there isn't any. But there will be someday, and then when it's raining, nobody would argue about whether or not it was raining. Um, so it simply uh, is a statement of how things are. And when we think of it that way, we think about the three marks of existence as, as being the view. And then we contrast view to method. So the method, of course, is meditation practice. And the view is that conceptualization and understanding that we bring to our meditation practice. And uh, I think many of us, um, or at least myself, when we first began meditating, we thought, well, we could just sit on the cushion and, and, and eventually it would just like kind of come to us. The sort of fundamental nature of reality would bloom within the hard essence of the brilliance of our own minds. Well, I don't know about you, but that hasn't exactly been my experience. And, and the reason for that is that meditation practice has to have to have the cauldron of the view. It has to occur within a space. We have to prepare the space where uh, the method uh, can actually occur. Sometimes it's said just like a bird needs two wings to fly. You need, you need to have a new wing of view where you come to understand or have a set of understandings that you can contemplate. And then you have to have a practice that allows you to reflect on, on that view. And, and we say to incorporate that view. It's not that you simply accept the view, but it's, it's that the, the view sort of molds around, it becomes, it becomes the back, uh, um, the, the gossip that goes behind your mind, you know, sort of constant little chatter about impermanence and change and suffering and egolessness. And, and so, so view here then is what we're talking about today. I'm going to talk about method. Method is simply the practice that you that you have. And so um, there is this interchange. There used to be um, Tibetan Buddhist sects are kind of always yelling at each other, and um, and one of the great sects of, of Tibetan Buddhism, the Kagyu sect. Uh, was sometimes known as, as um, that they sat like pigs. It was not really complimentary um, or like animals. And, and, and the dig there was that they really didn't, they didn't really grasp the view. 
This, of course, was from the perspective of the other sects, not from the perspective of the Kagi. And, uh, but the idea was, uh, and many did, they had a perfectly, and do have uh, a very subtle and well-established uh, uh, philosophy and, um, and view. But it was sort of, the, the idea was that you could, you could just meditate, and that really wasn't in, in, in the pantheon of understanding going to get you there. Anyway, so uh, so this is about view, and uh, the first of the three marks of existence is impermanence, and uh, sometimes said that all things that are composite must uh, decompose or, or will come to an end, or there's a lot of ways it's been said. And, uh, and so then, well, what's, what things are composite? And then there will be lists of things. Of course, Buddhists, like all religions, they love lists. We'll talk about a few lists today. But there, you could list all the things that you've ever experienced in your life that are composite. You might start, for instance, sometimes people start with a chair, or they start with a vase, or they start with a table, and say, well, what, what in the table is the table? Is it the legs? Is it the frame? Is it the screws? It's all those things that come together, form it, make it to be composite. Or you might talk about a physical body. Which part of the physical body is the physical body? Well, it's it's composite. It's composed of cells and blood and stuff. And all the things that are composed of anything else must come to an end. And that's simply the fact that we all experience. That's the fact of change. Well, maybe you can't argue with change anymore than you can argue with rain. Change occurs. Things that are composite dissolve. From the moment that they come together, they're on the road to dissolution. And that's as true for ourselves as it is true for this Zendo, which of course wasn't always a Zendo, as is true for the wood that makes up the Zendo, which of course used to be on a tree, or the paint that used to be the composite of the chemicals that went into the paint. All of that will go away, just as the Hill that the Zendo gets built on in the ocean that the Zendo overlooks, all of that will, will go away with time. We say that the universe is 14 and change billion years old, but that's that's a number. And there'll be something before that, and there's something will become after that. And that too is composite, and that too is subject to change, and that too is subject to dissolution. And so so that's that's basically the notion or the view of impermanence. When we bring the view to impermanence, whenever we sort of think, not sort of think, whenever we think, well, there's something I could hold on to. So it's not, not just about something to hold on to that's, that's physical, but it's also something to hold on to that's uh, psychological. Now there's a relationship that will be with me forever. There's a mother I can count on forever. There's a child that will always love me. Uh, there's a teacher that will never disappoint me. All of those things are in fact composite as well. And all of those things being composite will come to an end one way or another. Sometimes it's said that Buddhism is kind of a gloomy religion. In fact, I might've said that here once before. And 
Um, and it's sounding a little gloomy right now. So, so let's, let's cheer up a little bit and just sort of say, well, this is just how things are. It's not, it's not about gloomy, it's not about not gloomy. It's just simply uh, as, it, as it is. And um, just like the sun will rise uh, in the east and set in the west, just as the winter rains will come, impermanence simply occurs. It just kind of happens. Um, getting back to our list, suffering comes in eight brands uh, and three subdivisions. The, the first subdivision is sometimes known as the, the super mundane subdivision. And uh, this is the, uh, the sufferings that occur uh, because we uh, have these human bodies. And so there's four of them, of course, birth, old age, sickness, and death. And uh, each uh, body is uh, subject to them from the moment that they're born until the moment that they pass on over. And, um, and so just taking them in the usual order, uh, beginning, of course, with birth, I mean, generally we begin with birth. But sometimes I feel like I, now I could probably start with old age. But anyway, uh, starting with birth, um, you know, you're, you're in your mother's womb for a significant period of time. The last bit of which, you know, you probably even know is just sort of, you know, it's a warm and nurturing kind of a space. And uh, even if your mother's, you know, not taking particularly good care of, you, her body is taking the best possible care of you. In fact, it's doing everything it can to make sure you're as safe and as healthy and as well-fed and uh, in, in as lovely environment as it possibly can. And you stay there quite a while. And then of course, there's, there's kind of like a knocking at the door and, and you're, you're kind of you know, slightly, slightly, um, maybe not all that nicely asked to eat. And, and you either get cut out or pushed out. And it might just take a few seconds or it could take a day or two. And then um, um, it's sometimes said that there's, there's, this, there's this momentary gasp that occurs when all of a sudden you realize, you, as the infant you, realize that, well, it's just not going to be warm and gooey anymore. That, that, that's like over. And, and there are either bright lights or soft music, but whatever it is, it's something else. It isn't, it isn't the warm and soft and uh, nutritive space that it used to be. And so that's, that's basically the suffering that we attach uh, to birth. And, and uh, it certainly can be a very joyous occasion, at least for your parents. But it said that for the infant, it, it, it's kind of rude, the whole thing, frankly. And um, old, age, old age, which we are all experiencing or, or will experience uh, if we're lucky, um, really has to do with, with the dissolution of body parts and, and abilities. And uh, at some point in our lives, uh, this, this sort of gathers a little bit of speed. And uh, though it's usually noticeable um, by the end of your 30s or 40s, it sort of picks up after a while. 
and uh, every couple of months or every couple of years, there's something that you used to be able to do that you can't do as easily or can't do at all. And then there's something else. And usually by the time that something else comes up, you sort of forgot the fact you couldn't do the other thing either. And, and then it sort of gets on a bit of a roll. And, uh, and, and, and the effect of one's own mortality becomes a slightly uh, bigger deal. And that's fine. That's a good thing, really. That's, that's um, um, perhaps that's part of growing up. And, um, but at the same time, it's painful. It's a form of suffering. Um, sickness, uh, of course, is the third. And it can occur uh, any time um, during one's life. You don't have to wait too long. And you have intermittent sickness, uh, many of us. Uh, through our lives that, that form particular challenges. And, uh, and it too, of course, is, is uh, a manifestation of a dissolution of a composite, a composite that is our body. Um, and then beyond that, uh, we have death, and uh, we don't really know too much about death. A lot of the Tibetans that I hang out with regularly seem to be kind of very little attached to the death thing, frankly not to disparage others, of course. Um, but, but death um, is a great unknown for all of us. And, and regardless of how much uh, one's religion or one's uh, philosophy uh, may take one uh, uh, to, to think about death in a, in a regular basis, death has some very sort of nasty qualities. And, uh, and it certainly, I think, qualifies in the pantheon of suffering is right up there. Because even, even if the death part itself is fine, those all, there are all those things you're not going to do again. They're just not going to be part of this existence, the only existence that you know of. And that might have to do with your children and your grandchildren growing up. And it might have to do with, you know, the last season of a TV show you were following or a series of books that you wanted to read the last one or some realization you thought you might be on the cusp of or a piece of artwork or a trip or a travel or a new craft beer that you're not going to experience. It can be any number of things. It can be very simple things and it can be uh, complex things with which you're entirely connected and that, that the idea that you're not going to be able to experience those things, if you were to stop and think about it, would be crushing. And so death here, death as a form of suffering, really has to do with, with, with the experience of the loss of continuity, the loss of continuity of your life and those things that, uh, that occur. And so, so that's the first four. There's the really simple to understand ones. Then there's three that are not quite as simple to understand. Well, they're pretty simple, frankly. Um, one is that um, we get things that we don't want. Not just diseases, but you know, we are uh, burdened uh, with, uh, with um, things that are difficult for us to deal with, or um, we um, have responsibilities that we don't want, or um, 
We have uh, a pair of pants that don't fit very well, but we don't really want to trade them in, or get rid of them because you can't exactly afford to. Um, but but that our lives are filled with things that we don't exactly, those are not the things that we wanted to have. And we can't get rid of them exactly. And uh, so that that's one. The second is there are things that we want that we can't get, pretty closely related. Uh, uh, jobs or cars or relationships, husbands or wives that are not ours, that we might want, um, that we can't have. And, and uh, that's sort of uh, uh, part of our lives is, is that in our list of things that we want, we're not, no matter how long that list is and how completely satisfied we are, there are some things that we're not going to have. We're not going to get. It might be that you um, um, you had written a book. I'm not talking about the book that's about to come out, and um, it really didn't do as well as you wanted it to do. Or you had tried to write a book and you couldn't finish it. Um, or you had written a piece of music and it didn't go anywhere. Or you had wanted a particular job or a particular promotion and you didn't get that. The list of things that we haven't gotten, um, and yet we sort of just go on. It's, it's actually pretty long, and um, and so uh, that that's the um, sixth form of uh, suffering. Um, and the, the seventh form of suffering is that you have something, um, and then you lose it. Because there's something that you have, and it was something that you wanted to keep. And then this could be. Um, a relationship or a job or an artistic endeavor or something and and it's no longer part of your existence it's just gone and uh, so that's that's a seventh but those three i think are kind of they're all in the same sort of ballpark of the stuff that you have that you want but you can't have it and the stuff that you have that you don't want and the stuff that you want that you have lost and then, um, and then the um, um, last or the eighth uh, form of suffering is known as uh, suffering. Well, it's got a lot of names. It's known, sometimes known as the suffering of suffering. That seems a little redundant. Um, or sometimes it's known as uh, all pervasive suffering. And truthfully, uh, my good teacher. Uh, once translated it as uh, basic anxiety. Um, and um, it's the idea that, that, that within these other seven sufferings and the acknowledgement of impermanence, um, there's actually there's, 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 there's a little more that's not covered. There's, there's, there's in the back, in, 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 in the back of your mind somewhere, there's, there's a little voice that's saying, yes, but it's, it's a little worse than that. And he uses a couple of different analogies. One, one analogy he uses is you go to France, you fly into France, you lose your best friends. And um, I don't know how many of you have been to France, but those of you who've been there and don't speak French will get this. Anyway, you, you fly to France and, and your friend is, is in the hospital. 
and he's kind of sick, and we visit him a few times, and after all, he doesn't seem to even want to see you. And his family has no interest in you at all. And, and um, you're walking around in Paris for no particular reason, and nobody will talk to you. And, and you don't even have enough French to be able to get out of the country. And, and, and the whole thing, I mean, aside from how bad all that is, it's sort of, the whole thing is just, it's just kind of icky. It's kind of, it's always just another little piece. Sometimes it's sort of like, you know, you're coming back from the doctor and you just found out you're gonna have cancer and you're gonna die and your family's gonna die, everybody else is gonna die, and then you stub your toe. It's sort of that, that last little piece, a little sort of basic voice that's constantly reminding me that, um, that even those things that are bad are going to fall apart. That uh, improvements actually um, will will pervade uh, the, the whole the whole thing. And um, anyway, that's that's basic anxiety or all pervasive pain. And sort of sense that on top of the whole thing is there's a, a great uh, um, umbrella. Or pancake that just sort of sits on it. So I think we should all cheer it up by now. Um, so now we can talk about egolessness. A few months ago, I talked about groundlessness, and egolessness and groundlessness are very similar. They're the idea, they're sort of the fundamental first thing when you find out about Buddhism, is you find out that, well, you know, Buddhism came out of Hinduism. As we all know, and uh, the Hindus were, are um, um, to have a relationship to soul or to Atman. And one of the Buddha's first pronouncements is uh, is that of the truth of an Atman, that, that an Atman or soul uh, does not, in fact, uh, exist. And um, the qualities that we try to hang on to um, to put together as a soul or an ego. Um, Probably ego is a little less touchy than soul. Uh, the, the things that we sort of point to uh, uh, as being our ego are, are composite, just like everything else. They're ideas that we have, they're histories that we have, there's the cultural things that we've been taught by our parents and our teachers, the, the way that people look at us. The, the feedback that we get from the environment. There are all these myriad thousands and hundreds of thousands of data points that come together. And, and in our minds, they fuse into this thing that's extremely solid, the thing we call ego. And we carry this sort of ego thing around. And, and the Buddha's insight was that even though there's, there's thousands of data points, and even though it feels more solid than anything else, more solid than any of the things we've talked about. It isn't. It simply isn't there. It's simply a construct. And meditation practice is, of course, that thing that helps us to attempt to deconstruct that. And, and so egolessness um, is, um, or is the, the third of the three marks in existence. The other day, I was um, driving uh, to pick something up at, at one of my grandchild's uh, schools, and uh, I got a flat tire. 
and I got really a flat tire and I ran over a nail or something. And it got blew a hole in my tire. And um, being sort of a, a newish car that sort of filled up the batteries, it doesn't really have any room for a spare tire. So it doesn't have anything as primitive as a spare tire. So what it has is this container of sealant that you hook up to this little compressor that you hook up to the what used to be called the cigarette lighter. But now it's just called the 12 volt thing or who. Anyway, so you hook it up and you hook this bottle of sealant up and then you hook the sealant up to the tire and then you blow the tire up with the sealant. And the idea is that it seals this hole. Yeah, but the hole was so big the sealant and the air just like flew right out the hole. It was, the tire was completely, I mean, it was kind of told, was told. And, uh, and, and the idea, I guess, there is that uh, egolessness, uh, the experience of egolessness is, is that hole in the tire. Tires seem so concrete. You kick them, you know, when you're looking for a car, you kick them, make sure they're solid. And you drive and you sometimes you know, you check the tire pressure just to know how solid your tires are. But at any, at any moment, um, there could be a hole uh, blown in the tire and it could just be worth like nothing. And um, somebody would have to come and get you a new tire. And so um, the idea of egolessness is that uh, the solidity of one's tire, if you will, the solidity of one's ego can, can be punctured and is punctured. And the idea of working with your thoughts and awareness and the relationship between awareness and conception or awareness and mind, uh, which is explored through meditation practice, is a way to open ourselves up enough to, to the environment that, um, that we experience egolessness. And uh, it's said, Frankly said, I should say, um, that the experience of egolessness uh, brings uh, joy, energy, and youth because it brings a, a perkiness and a clarity that, that allows us to live in the world that um, is basically um, suffering and impermanence. The egolessness is the, uh, the juice. It's, it's the incentive, it's the quality of aliveness and energy and creativity uh, that we bring to our lives. And it's actually, I also said that it's the incentive to practice, that we practice to, to, to open ourselves up so that there is no boundary uh, between ourselves um, and, and the fundamental natures of the worlds around us and the people that we live with. And so we control uh, through practice as well as through the experience of being with others to uh, be open. And that openness is the quality of, of, uh, of liveliness and, um, and um, he, uses, he used the word youth, but it was youth in order the sense of, of uh, a youthful quality of engagement. And it's not, not tied to a particular age, but it's a tied, it's tied to the desire to engage 
in the world around you. I have a grandson who was just nine the other day, and he is so engaged that when he comes to visit us, if you like moved one thing, like a book, from one side of the desk to the other, he'll say, why'd you move that book? Or if you have a new package that's totally unrelated to him, he said, oh, you got a new package. And he is so, his scanning ability of the world, his engagement with the world is phenomenal to watch. And the idea of uh, experiencing egolessness is the idea of sort of having that quality of perkiness that allows us um, to engage uh, with the world around us. So I think um, if there are any questions, uh, that would be great. So basically, we've talked about uh, three modes of existence being uh, impermanence, that uh, which is composite will dissolve, the uh, eight uh, forms of suffering, and the notion of egolessness really as the ability to fully engage in touch with the world uh, that's around us. So that would be, or that's any interesting questions, uh, that would be great. Thank you very much. Yes, early in your talk, you spoke of um, view, uh, having a view, that, that it's important to work with this view. And, and we chanted the Meta Sutra that says, not holding the fixed views. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what you're talking about, I don't think. You're talking about a flexible view, aren't you? It's a, it's a this background view. Could you talk a little more about that? Did people raise your hand if you heard the question? Nobody's raising their hand. Nobody heard the question? Raise your hand if you didn't hear the question. I think we heard it. Heard it? Didn't hear it? I think we heard it. Okay. We heard it. I think they heard it. All right. Anyway, it's about fixed view versus view. Because in the Metta Sutra, we are uh, basically instructed not to hold to a fixed view. Um, well, that's a good question. I think the idea of view here um, has really to do with seeing the world as it is versus a fixed view is uh, seeing the world that we would like to have or like to be able to inhabit. So a fixed view is, well, I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be bad in my mind if the Republicans didn't predominate in the next election. I feel pretty fixed about that. In fact, it's sometimes hard not to think about that during the day. It's so fixed. But that's a fixed view. That's like in cement. And it's not subject to decomposition. No, it is subject to decomposition. But, but, but the view here has to do with those things that simply are. You know, so uh, not to stretch the analogy too much, somebody's going to win two weeks from Tuesday. That's the person who will win. It just will be that for people who will win. And there'll be winners and they will be losers. So the, 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 the view is that that world that we live in 
has brought us to this point where this is a choice that people are making. That's just simply true. The fifth view would be, I would like to have this be the result. And I think the interesting thing about that is it's easy to think that um, the view, when we think actually that's a really much more interesting thing, I think, that uh, view and fixed view are the same. Whereas they're, they're absolutely completely opposite. They're as opposite as things can be because the view is simply living in the nature of reality. Whereas fixed view is sort of, it's perfectly, it's fixed. Um, Michael's not here to talk about fixatives that he puts on top of his paints. It's something you fixed that you want to have it be a particular way rather than simply the thing itself. And so this is just the painting before the fixative. It's simply like the tree out there has, has green leaves. It just has green leaves. And if I could see better, I could see what kind of tree it is, but I can't. So it's a, green, it's a tree with green leaves. It just simply is a tree with green leaves. I, I, it's not that I would wish the trees had orange and yellow leaves because I'm from the Northeast where, you know, this time of year, there'd be colors to see. That might be my fixed idea about it. But it simply has, it just is what it is. It's just the reality that we live with. It's really, it's really an important distinction. So when we talk about having view, we're really talking about going beyond or before or after our own fixed ideas about how things could be or should be. And it's very difficult. That's the thing about view. You can, we can talk about it, we just talked for a while, a long time about impermanence and about suffering. But to actually incorporate that uh, within the interstices of one's neurons is really hard because it's much easier to have fixed views. It's much easier to sort of think, well, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and things are going to be fine. Or I'm going to wake up on November 4th and things are going to be wonderful. That's much easier than just sort of simply going moment by moment and experiencing uh, what, what the world has in store for us. Mm -hmm. so, so view, and then this is particularly about particularly, but in the Tibetan tradition, we spend years and years studying uh, aspects of view and, and trying to sort of understand how to view reality and then incorporate those understandings into our meditation practice. And, and so it's about moving from fifth view into, into the view of simply how things are. Great question. Thank you. Um, the view of impermanence seems to always stress the, the things falling apart. But in order for things to fall apart, they also have to be created. So it seems to me there's so much creation going on, uh -huh. as well as you know, things falling apart. So why um, is there some area in Buddhism where people investigate the Impermanence in the sense of all the creativity, and if not, there are some good reasons for that. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, that's 
the, the question is, how come we only talk about things falling apart rather than things being created, coming together? Um, I have no idea what the answer is to that question, frankly. None. And I, I think, I mean, maybe other people have thoughts about that. That would be helpful. Um, maybe it's, it's simply that everybody sort of understands that things come together to form composites or buildings or relationships. And that that's kind of, that's such a given that it's, it's not part of the discussion. But the part that's not so much given is the fact that things are falling apart. But I'm going to say one thing that um, Jane and I have been talking about. We, I think Buddhists have this idea that the rest of the world doesn't know that things are falling apart, which is frankly not true. I mean, some of the best art and books and theater and things are really about the inherent uh, dissolution that's occurring all the time. You know, and then might not use Buddhist terms for. Um, and, and the same thing goes for death, frankly. I'll put another plug in for death. I watched lots of people die because that was my previous profession. And none of them were Buddhists. Well, not none of them, but the vast majority of them died. And uh, the vast majority of them died with tremendous dignity and understanding. They don't fear death any more than we do. And yet that's, there is a, like a little bit of, I think, Buddhist chauvinism about both of those things. Um, but uh, anyway, that's, I, I, but anyway, but I think it's a great question. So if somebody else has some idea about why we never talk about anything happy, no, I'm coming together, that would be good. Um, hi, my, I'm Buddhist. Hello. I just had a thought about that, that last question. I don't know if people can hear me, but I'm speaking anyway. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so my root teacher, Sasaki Roshi, used to talk about contraction and expansion rather than coming together and falling apart. And in, in, that, in that spectrum, in terms of creativity, I like to think of it as the transitory nature of things as they are, uh, rather mm -hmm. than coming together and falling apart. So even the act of creation is also transitory. So that's my thought about that, since you asked. Thank you. No, that's very helpful. I think that's really true. The transitory nature sort of reflects on the impermanence. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Other questions? I, uh, yes, I have a question. Um, this is going to be, this is not necessarily my belief, but, but I will ask it. Um, so you talked about the distinction between views and fixed views. And you mentioned that the Buddhist view is the view of the world as it is, or a view of reality. But one religion's uh, view is another religion's fixed view. For example, the idea that Buddhism 
says there's no soul. As you know, in all the Abrahamic religions, Naaman, you know, that's not the view. So, um, and of course in Buddhism, we put a name to it that they're all deluded. And they say that, you know, maybe the Buddhists are, Buddhists are deluded. So anyway, I, I don't know if this question has an answer, but it's just an interesting thing of uh, when we say that views are not fixed views, but there is some principles that, like axioms, like in mathematics, that Buddhists have to accept during the course of study to, to become Buddhists, to actually practice Buddhism. One of them is that there's no uh, permanent self, the view of emptiness, the view of no soul. So if you could speak to that, I'd appreciate it because I'm, you know, I'd like to see uh-huh. unity and, uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, kind of, I was thinking something similar to that, like if you use the analogy of the rain and how if it's raining, you would say, no one would argue that it wasn't raining. You can kind of see that about impermanence and suffering, but it's harder to see that about egolessness or the lack of soul because that I don't think, you know, everybody knows that at least this physical body will die. So then no one, you know, regardless of whether you think there's an afterlife or there isn't. So that part seems more like the rain, but I would agree with him sort of that uh-huh. it's harder to see how egolessness is like the, the rain because right. I think- it seems more of an opinion or- uh-huh. No, I can see that also. I, I, I think that the, the Buddhist instruction regarding that ha, has uh, fundamentally to do with um, asking the meditator to find their soul, to, to find the things that ego that they could point to and, uh, and work with that. And, uh, and it was Buddha's understanding after having investigated himself, as well as uh, perhaps other Buddhists as well, that they were unable to find that. And and perhaps um, anatman is a little bit strong, and maybe it's more like, and I've often thought this, maybe it's more like death if you just don't know. There were a lot of uh, questions that the Buddha never discussed, like reincarnation, that other people talked about afterwards. Uh, that is well after his death. Um, But he did talk about that, and he basically said that if you investigate, um, my understanding is that you won't be able to find uh, a concrete thing. But I I think that it's really, um, it's a great question. I think it's important that every meditator uh, uses the meditation practice uh, to investigate that question. Uh, but you're certainly right about the Abrahamic and other religions that will point to an essence or a soul. Um, today in the newspaper, getting back to fixed results or fixed beliefs, there was an article that said that both Trump and Biden were looking f- to find the soul of America. But I didn't really know what that meant either. 
but I have a feeling that's not what they were talking about. They were talking more about sort of the essence, the underlying essence, which, um, which I think is different than what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about Anatman. And, uh, and I think also he was reacting um, to the concept of Atman as we experience it in uh, Hindu religion, not in the Abrahamic religions. And though that may be a distinction without a difference, um, it, it does, I think, have um, some cultural validity. Um, because I think within the Abrahamic religions, uh, there is some diversity of view as uh, to soul and, and what happens and where it goes and what uh, might be um, the final analysis. Anyway, I don't have anything else to add to that. Um, may, may I add something to it? Sure. Um, so I think um, this question that Kavi raised uh, is is more about um, is more the confusion that arises out of this question is one I would say very genuine, but I think it is more an issue of nomenclature rather than uh, differences in fundamental aspects of what Buddhism or the Abraham. Abrahamic religions teach. Because for one, I, I know that uh, for a fact that Buddha did uh, talk about uh, his previous lives and, and his, his various births. Uh, for example, in the Diamond Sutra, he talks about that uh, it, many lifetimes ago when he met the Dipankara Buddha and he did not attach to his idea of um, a, a self. That's why he did not suffer. Or he talks about uh, his various lives when he was a bird or when he was an animal. And, and he, while talking about his previous lives, he still uh, refers to uh, his, uh, the selflessness or his essence, which is emptiness. And, and also, so that's one area where Buddhism does talk about previous lives. And then in the Tibetan Book of the Dead as well, they talk about these four bardos where you can uh, you can be born again uh, in the animal realm or in the human realm or in the realm of the gods or in the realm of <clears throat> the angry ghosts um so um so so this uh, this aspect is is discussed but what i would say is that um uh, the difference in uh, in the in the nomenclature is that in Buddhism or, and in the collection of uh, teachings which are similar to Buddhism, for example, Taoism, where they talk about the Tao uh, being this empty thing. And in Buddhism, they talk about the Dharma being this empty thing uh, um, or the Buddha nature being this empty thing and that our soul is part of this. And it is, it is the liberation of the soul that it goes back into this Dharma or the Tao and um, and what the, I think my understanding is that these Abrahamic religions are talking talking about the same soul, which is uh, which is still according to Buddhism and Buddha also is traveling through these lifetimes, and it is this liberation of the soul and going back into the Tao or the Dharma is the final is the final liberation. So um, I, I do not think that uh, these two are these two views. Are uh, are mutually um, exclusive. That Buddhism talks about there is there is nothing that travels with you, and this Abrahamic religion say that there is 
this this perfect soul and there is uh, there is no further subdivision divisions of it i think buddhism goes one step uh, below uh, below this uh, all right i think that's very helpful that's very good thank you i heard the bell ring anyway i'd like to thank you all very much Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.